Welcome to Pollinators and Power. I'm Terry Oxford, and I'm a pollinator advocate in San Francisco, California. Thank you so much for joining me today, Tom. Really appreciate your information about all of the neonicotinoids. Today, we're going to talk about sulfoxiflor, the neonicotinoid that the EPA just approved for general use in the United States. So go ahead, Tom, just tell us about that new EPA ruling. Well, you know, sometimes it's a challenge to try to follow the thread of the story, and sulfoxiflor has been an issue for several years. It first was presented as an alternative to neonicotinoids, but it wasn't long before well-informed and sensible scientists began to take a closer look and say, well, look, this is just another neonicotinoid in sheep's clothing. It has the same action as the neonicotinoids, and it's it's not an improvement. Initially, when the uh, sulfoxiflor first came under consideration with the EPA, they were going to register it with a conditional registration, which is a pattern that they've followed many times. They did that with clothianidin, and we've, we've talked about that story many times. But they were going to give it a conditional registration, but then they realized that people were on to what they were doing. And that if they gave it a conditional registration, obviously there would have to be conditions, and there were people out there beekeepers, environmental groups who were going to monitor very closely how they satisfied those conditions. Well, they went silent for a while, and the next thing we knew, they registered sulfoxiflor with a full registration, no conditions, no announcement to the public. They just did it, I think, to see if they could get away with it. A number of beekeepers and a number of environmental groups filed suit against the EPA in 2013 over its registration of sulfoxiflor, and they prevailed in the courts. In 2015, the Federal Court of Appeals ordered the EPA to withdraw approval for uh, sulfoxiflor, 2015. Within a year, the EPA was trying to violate those court orders, and it was approving it for selected crops, which it said weren't attractive bees. And <laughs> it's just been one thing after another. Now, just a few days ago, we find that they're going to release sulfoxiflor to the market. It's already being used on certain things in violation of the law, in my view, but uh, nevertheless, it will be an additional 17 million acres, and it will be used on such common crops as corn and alfalfa, both of which are very attractive to honeybees. And the dodge that the EPA is using is that it can be used safely if label directions are followed. And the label directions, <laughs> yeah. We all catch the humor of that. The uh, the label directions are not to use this on any crop in bloom that would be attractive to the bees. But we know from 50 years of experience that if, if it's used as a spray, it's going to drift onto all kinds of things, all sorts of attractive, bee-attractive plants. And we're going to have massive bee kills, just as we have with the neonicotinoid family. So this is on the heels of just a few weeks ago when the USDA decided that it was going to suspend its monitoring of the bee colony population. Right. 
all of these things are engineered by the chemical industry. The chemical industry is in the driver's seat here. The EPA is just doing as they're told. We have no congressional representatives who raised a single question about this. And, and it's going to accelerate the bee losses that we've seen, which for many commercial beekeepers are approaching 100% in a year. The turnover of their colonies is total in the course of a season, and they cannot survive this, and they won't survive this. Well, and you know, the problem is it's massive and it's also larger than what we're even expressing here because what's going to happen is this product is going to be, I, I dug into it a little bit today, and this product is going to be used on landscape material, both plants and trees that humans don't eat, but all of nature does. So trees are a great source of flowers and ornamental trees are going to be treated with this systemic neonic, probably in a soil drench, which will create little plutonium bombs wherever one of these trees is planted. So it's going into all sorts of product, you know, both of human crops and also landscape crops, which bees are totally drawn to, but that's not going to make any news because humans don't eat it. The bees don't even enter into the consideration. It's the chemical companies that are in the driver's seat, and they're making these decisions based upon their profit motive. These products are multi-million, if not billion-dollar products, and they want them out there on the market, and they want them used, and it doesn't matter what the consequences right, right. are. That's, that's where Congress has failed us. This is a threat not only to the environment, but it's a threat to the people of this country. And the congressmen and women have remained silent. We get this uh, well-intentioned Save the Pollinators bill. It's been advanced every year since 2013. Gets a few more uh, signers in an election year when they want to look good, but it has achieved nothing. Right. Well, and you know, I just go further once again. This is this, the fact that it doesn't go anywhere within the bee narrative is because the chemical industry's hold on our regulatory system, our food system at every strata of our society, including at the research level. Because there are, I'm, I've yet to read American reports that come out strongly against these um, these neonics and fungicides out of the academic institutions. The land-grant universities are just playing along. They're just going along. Well, one of the things that the corporations have done with Foresight is they recognize that it was important that they be able to uh, control the message. Well, the way they did that was by buying up all the major media outlets. All the major media outlets are in the hands of a few corporatists, and they control the message. So for example, you're not hearing anywhere what I've been saying about the environmental poisoning with the neonicotinoids, which is just so massive, it's almost beyond comprehension. It's the toxic equivalent of about 400 billion pounds of DDT every year. Now, in its year of highest usage, DDT was only 80 million pounds, five to 10,000 times more toxic than DDT. And if you look at the quantities that are going into the environment, it's massive. It's a wonder that anything is alive out there. Well, and it's not. It's not. And Biomass it's not, is exactly. down. It's down quite a bit. Like they're saying it's down by 75%. That's that's ecocide. Worldwide collapse. You know, and it's so interesting. Going back to it. Yeah, it's collapse. Going back to what you just said about the, um, the toxic equivalency is really interesting because I heard a... Um, 
a pesticide industry apologist, uh, beekeeper, speak just recently about how neonics were using less neonics than we did DDT. And what he did was he measured it, when he spoke about it, he measured it in pounds, mm -hmm. like that was an equivalency. Can you talk about that a little bit? Because oh, that's sure. one of the main things that the, pest, the beekeeping... The beekeeper pesticide apologists always say that, that they're using less with neonics than what they used with DDT and other products. So, but they're talking about it in pounds, like it's an equivalency. Can you speak about that? Yeah, sure. I've, I've talked about that deception many times, and it is a deception. It's totally inappropriate to compare these pesticides on the basis of pounds. And I've used the I've used the example of rocks and nuclear warheads, <laughs> which both are both are weapons, mm -hmm. but you wouldn't you wouldn't compare them by weighing. Them. Right. And it's no more it's no more appropriate to to do that than it is to compare these chemicals by pounds. But that's part of the deception, and and largely goes unchallenged. But let's just take a look at DDT as the example. Compare the DDT and the neonicotinoids. The highest, the year of highest usage for DDT was 80, 1959, 80 million pounds. Well, what you're told now by the EPA is that the usage of the neonicotinoids is 4 million pounds. If you don't know the story behind that, that sounds pretty good. 80 million pounds of DDT in 1959, 4 million pounds of neonicotinoids. That looks like a big improvement. But what's the, what's the rest of the story? Well... There are several things that they're trying very carefully to keep from you. And one is the relative toxicity to lower level life forms, invertebrates, arthropods, insects, of the neonicotinoids compared to DDT. And science has shown us that the toxicity is five to 10,000 times greater than DDT. So five to 10,000 times greater. But the 4 million pounds they're reporting is a deception because 90% of the use of the neonicotinoids is as seed coatings. Mm -hmm. And the seed and the EPA has determined that seed coatings are not a pesticide use. So what's being used every year is not 4 million pounds, but more like 40 million pounds. 40 million pounds times five to 10,000 times greater toxicity yields, with simple math, yields the statistic that every year going into the environment is the toxic equivalent of about 400 billion pounds of DDT. And, and, there, is, and there is no safe dose for these pesticides. Their effect is cumulative and irreversible, and they have half-lives of years. So every year that 400 million pounds is on 400 million pounds is on top of everything that's been put on for the previous 5 or 10 years. And what we're seeing is we're seeing a global insect collapse, mm -hmm. but you're not you're not hearing that. The major media is not telling you that story mm -hmm. because those outlets are owned by the corporations. Right. The only place that I hear about it is from people that are talking about native pollinators. I'm hearing a deafening silence from honeybee keepers, except for a select few like Jeff Anderson, you, um, different people in Europe. Uh, but as far as the beekeeping culture here in the United States, they're not talking about this. They're just like business as usual. Just get the honey and go. 
And uh, I just have to confess, I'm hugely disappointed in them and don't consider them my community because they don't want to talk about pesticides at all. And I'm just, uh, I'm, I'm a little bit, you know, sad at the, at the waist because they could have been really powerful. And I know that that's why the, the pesticide industry worked to control the narrative in the beekeeping world for a long time and still does because they knew it could have been a powerful voice. Well, over the past 15 years, we've seen the creation of a number of beekeeping organizations, NGOs, that are, are intending to try to help solve some of these problems. And what the corporations did almost immediately is they began to work their way into those organizations by contributing money and getting on the boards. And yeah. so there are virtually no helpful beekeeping organizations that haven't been infiltrated by corporate money. And it's interesting, too, because even on, um, I know you're not on Facebook, but there are pollinator Facebook pages, discussion pages, where it's just about organic flowers, organic planting for pollinators and for wildlife. That includes birds and vertebrate, you know, soil health. And I'm seeing the same infiltration there from players from land-grant universities coming in and talking about everything else except pesticide poisonings and trying to deflect attention. So that's how it's done. The corporations have two primary mantras that they're trying to advance. One is that all of these losses are attributable to the Varroa mite, and it's Varroa, Varroa, Varroa. That serves to take the focus off the role the pesticides are playing, and the fact is that the pesticide exposure makes colonies vulnerable to the Varroa. The Varroa is an effect, not a cause. The mm -hmm. other, the other, and, and it's what we called when I was in the corporate world, motherhood. The motherhood is that you just need to plant more flowers for the pollinators. Mm. Well, that that sounds like a really good idea. And that's that's something that anybody can do. They can plant a few flowers in their garden or plant a flowering tree. or That sounds really good until you realize that that overlooks the fundamental science that's being revealed to us. And that is that the environment all, almost totally across the North American continent, the soil and the groundwater has been poisoned at toxic levels. Everything right. drinks. Non-target plants, pollinating plants that the pollinators are attracted to draw up that groundwater and the bees are poisoned as a result. That's the big deception here. They don't want anybody to know how massive the environmental poisoning has been. And I've said many times what I just said about the 400 billion pounds a year, and I have specifically asked for rebuttals from the chemical industry or anybody who thinks I'm wrong. I've yet to hear a single comment from anybody because they know that I'm right. Yeah. Same goes for activists that are saying the same thing in, in the European Union and the, the UK. And then, you know, same for me. I mean, I'm not any great voice or anything, but I've been speaking and naming names for a while now, including the California State Beekeepers Association, Randy Oliver, UC Davis Entomology Department heads, like, you know, the different people there, including Eric Musson, who's now retired, but works hand in hand with corporate interests like Bayer all the time. His conferences are, are basically run by the industry. Industry. And the important thing is, is that what can they say? Because it's just the truth. We're only speaking the truth. And so their collaborative attitude toward 
monoculture agriculture interests is destroying the planet. And these guys are getting away with it. They're making money hand over fist. The land-grant universities are making their money from uh, industry, and that includes the almond industry, which is one of the most destructive industries, I'd say, on the planet. They just deplete, deplete, deplete. That could be their mantra. So what can individuals do? I know it's not, I know the industry is on steroids destroying the planet, but people, I believe people could buy as much organic produce as possible. It's the only way to put your money where your mouth is at our level. I think the only long-term solution is that we get off this uh, chemical a agriculture bandwagon. The, yeah. the chemical companies have en engineered this very nicely. They create the demand for their product. They make the farmers dependent upon their products. And, well, we had a discussion not long ago about dicamba. Dicamba is a herbicide, a powerful herbicide. It's been around for many years. And what the chemical companies did is they genetically engineered soybeans to be tolerant of dicamba. So if you're a soybean farmer, you can buy this genetically engineered crop and plant it. And to control the weeds, you just spray it with dicamba. The weeds are gone because dicamba is deadly. Little bit of a problem. Another backstory. Dicamba also is very volatile. And if it's put down in the spring, it may sit there for a couple of weeks until the conditions are right or wrong, depending upon your perspective. It warms up. The dicamba volatilizes again, lifts up and is carried by the prevailing winds, in some cases many miles downwind. Well, what's the consequence to the farmer like me, who may be growing soybeans that are traditional soybeans, not the premium genetically engineered soybeans? What happens to my crop? My crop is killed. It's the old maf it's the old mafia fire insurance, you know? Either you buy our fire insurance or we burn down your building. Either, either you buy the genetically modified sorghum or soybeans, or we kill you. And something like four, four million acres have been uh, subject to this kind of damage. For the beekeepers, it's even worse because they, they aren't growing soybeans, but they're dependent on a wide variety of, of native plants, weeds in many cases, and those are eliminated by the dicamba as well. Uh, I listened to a recent interview with Richard Coy, an Arkansas beekeeper, a family operation that has been there for generations, and they're having to move most of their operation to the northern United States to try to stay away from the dicamba damages. The beekeepers cannot hold out much longer, you know, and you made ref you made reference to the to the almonds. The almonds are kind of a two-edged sword. The pollination contracts have kept the beekeepers going. That's become the major portion of their cash flow for most of them. But they're not able to keep their numbers up. And at some point, and I think that point is coming pretty soon. The beekeepers simply will not be able to provide colonies to, pro to pollinate the almonds no matter what the pollination fee is. There simply will not be the bees available. Right, right. Well, and it's happening. So what the almond industry is doing 
just like the citrus industry, is now it's deplete. Both have depleted the Central Valley of California of all of its resources. There's nothing out there. It looks like a dead zone, uh, including water. Water is really uh, taken by these industries as well. So what they're doing, they've scattered around the planet, and they're now operating with impunity in Africa, and they're taking over pristine, beautiful land to um, put in, you know, these kind of cash crops and specialty crops. Mm -hmm. So, and, and using all the chemicals. And the sad thing for me is watching it happen in real time that Bayer and the beekeepers are joined together, joining forces mm -hmm. to take over mm -hmm. um, pristine land. So it just breaks my heart, um, you know, because that's how they roll. That's how these industries roll. They just sort of move into an area, create a few jobs. You know, beekeepers are happy for a while. And then once it's depleted and dead, completely dead, they just move on. You know, and everybody that's left behind just holding, you know, has nothing, nothing. They've Because they've, depletion means killing. Like not only have they killed the beekeepers living, but they've also killed the soil. Because these are forever chemicals. They're forever mm -hmm. chemicals. They don't just wash away and go somewhere. And I think that's the sad thing, too, is that people are so disconnected from their food that they don't really understand that everything matters. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. We're beginning to see we're beginning to see the medical evidence mm -hmm. that's emerging yeah. that the the consequences of these, heavy chemicals being applied to the environment, both coming back to us in the food, in the water, in the air. Yeah. Um, we're beginning to see serious medical problems that are a consequence. And sadly, sadly, when the, uh, when the corporations are considering whether or not a product is going to be profitable or not, they pay little attention to the consequences. Yeah. Well, and it's so funny because it's like a lot of the companies that make the poisons, like Bayer, also makes chemotherapy medicine. Oh, of I mean, course. They make the chemotherapy poison as well because that's what chemo is, is poison. Mm -hmm. So I just see that as diabolical. I can't think of another word. I don't like putting painting things in terms of good and evil, but I do see that as diabolical. Yeah, I think diabolical is being kind it's worse than diabolical. <laughs> right, right. Oh, my gosh. Okay, um, Tom, thank you. Is there anything else that you want to add to this? This is great, great. Uh, you know, these problems have confronted beekeepers endlessly, and we could go on for hours talking about sulfoxiflora, the neonicotinoids, dicamba, the failure of the USDA, the failure of the EPA, the corruption of the land grant colleges. I mm -hmm. mean, this this and is hopefully will continue to go on. We have to have these discussions because the only way that we're going to survive is if the people become aware of the level right. at which they're being poisoned and they demand right. and they demand changes. Yeah, and that's why I'm doing this is because I want people to be aware that what they're putting in their in their mouth and putting on their plate really matters. You have to think about things both up orchard and downstream and, you know, purchase accordingly. And that's the only way that we're really going to make a change is through consumer demand, uh, because these companies will only listen to money and uh, just give nature 
a boost by organic, by real organic. Well, thank you, Terry, for going to all the effort to put this story out before the people. Uh, I'm not trying to pat us on the back, but we're all the people have. Yeah, they're not. Yeah. They're not hearing these stories anywhere else. Yeah, they're certainly not listening. They're not hearing it from the from the B story and the and the the UC Davis B <laughs> B people. They're so annoying. <laughs> anyway, okay. Thanks, Tom. Okay. I'm Terry Oxford, and this is Pollinators and Power. Thanks for listening. <laughs>